Welcome everyone to the very last event of the 2020 Singapore Literature Festival in New York City. My name is Ji Leong Ko, and I'm the founder and organizer of Singapore Unbound, and I'm your host tonight. I'm wearing a white shirt and sitting in my home office in Harlem with a shelf of books behind me. My preferred pronouns are he, him. Organized by the NYC-based literary nonprofit Singapore Unbound, the Singapore Literature Festival brings together Singaporean and American authors and audiences for readings and discussions. Appropriately, the festival theme this year is The Politics of Hope. We acknowledge gratefully the sponsorship of Ethos Books and many private champions as well as the support of our co-presenters, New Narrative, The Evergreen Review, Asia Society, Adelphi University's MFA program and soapbox series, NYU English Department's Post-Colonial Race and Diaspora Studies Colloquium, the Southeast Asian Studies program at the University of California, Riverside, and Books Actually. Tonight, we will hear the scholar, poet, and activist Jackie Wang speak on the necessity and future of prison abolition. Our co-presenter for this event is the Evergreen Review. Let me first introduce you to our event moderator, Kirsten Han. Kirsten Han is a Singaporean freelance journalist and curator of the newsletter, We the Citizens. Her work often revolves around the theme of social justice, human rights, politics, and democracy, with bylines in publications such as The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Foreign Policy. She received an honorable mention from the World Justice Project's Anthony Lewis Prize for exceptional rule of law journalism in 2018, and a Human Rights Press Award for her commentaries on fake news and freedom of expression in 2019. Kirsten is also a founding member of We Believe in Second Chances, a group advocating for the abolition of the death penalty in Singapore. Please welcome Kirsten. Before I go, I will ask all our speakers to speak slowly and clearly so that the closed captioner can capture what you say. Thank you. Over to you, Kirsten. Thanks, G. So hi, everyone. My name is Kirsten Han. Uh, I'm wearing a black shirt with a smiley face on it. And for people who've been following, the smiley face is the same one that was used by the activist Jonathan Wan when he was standing in solidarity with climate strikers in Singapore. And he's also being investigated for holding up this smiley face in public. Uh, my, I'm sitting in my spare room, which is a bare white room and has an exercise ball behind me, which I can't quite explain. Um, and my preferred pronouns are she, her. So tonight I'm pleased to introduce our speaker, Jackie Wang. Jackie is a scholar, poet, multimedia artist, and assistant professor of culture and media studies at the New School's Eugene Lang College. She is the author of Carceral Capitalism, 
a book on the racial, economic, political, legal, and technological dimensions of the U.S. carceral state. In addition to her scholarship, her creative work includes the forthcoming poetry collection, the sunflower cast a spell to save us from the boy, and the experimental essay collection, Alien Daughters Walk Into the Sun. And so without further ado, I'd just like to invite Jackie to give her closing address. Greetings, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, give the keynote address uh, at Singapore Unbound. It's a huge honor for me to be here. Um, I am sitting uh, in my home office, which is really just a corner of a bedroom in my house, uh, wearing a black and white dress. And I've got um, my favorite uh, symbol to uh, my left, it's a sunflower next to me. Um, and I'm going to talk about uh, abolition tonight, but I wanted to talk more broadly about the context of the coronavirus pandemic um, and think about abolition in relation to everything that's happening in the world. But I wanted to start with a little meditation um, on an image and a quote from Walter Benjamin. So I'm going to share my screen now. So this is a monoprint um, by Paul Clay. Um, it's an image of um, the Angelus Nuvis, uh, which Benjamin refers to as the angel of history. And it's kind of a peculiar uh, looking cartoonish figure with uh, paws and wild hair or a mane of some kind and a tail. Um, and it's um, somewhat an abstract drawing, um, but I think that um, Benjamin's meditation on it is quite interesting. So Walter Benjamin writes, referring to the Angelus, Angelus Nubis. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which, which keeps piling wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing in from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such a violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This is what we call progress. So I wanna use um, this quote as the point of departure to think about um, history and our relationship to the future, because really um, 
this addresses an occasion for me to really sort this out for myself. Um, so just to get us started, how to live in relation to the future when one can only see the wreckage of history, our eyes fixed on the debris piling ever higher while we are blown towards a future we cannot perceive. We are blinded to what is coming, such is our doomed directionality. A year ago feels like another world. Who, besides Bill Gates, and I don't know if you all saw that uh, TED talk of Bill Gates talking about the coming pandemic, there are some conspiracy theories about that video, but who besides Bill Gates would have thought than a novel virus incubated in a bat cave outside of Wuhan, China, would sweep across the globe, leaving a wake of destruction, a million dead bodies, collapsed economies, mass unemployment, interminable cabin fever, Zoom fatigue, isolation, mental illness, domestic violence, when I think about the gendered and racialized nature of essential work, of childcare, domestic labor, the care of the sick and the elderly, I am painfully aware that this crisis is a crisis of social reproduction, that confinement to the home has turned women into the shock absorbers of the social catastrophe we are living through. How many years has the clock been turned back? A recent Washington Post headline reads, the COVID-19 recession is the most unequal in modern US history. The future. Let's talk about the future. A recent CDC survey found that one in four of those ages 18 to 24 have seriously considered suicide recently. For young people, the future feels like it has been canceled. It's as though someone has poured black paint on our mental picture of the future. It is as though all those pictures of the orange skies over California, Oregon, and Washington are actually pictures of the incineration of the future. Social media was ablaze with memes of apocalypse. Crisis forecloses the possibility of imagining a future by burdening us with what feels like the impossible task of trying to live through the day. Uncertainty glues us to the present. But maybe that's not completely true. Maybe coronavirus is, to borrow Arundhati Roy's words, a portal that we can walk through, an opportunity to throw out everything that was intolerable about the old world, the violence of normal. When the pandemic first hit, we witnessed an outpouring of mutual aid efforts unlike anything I've seen before. Funds were raised to cover bail, groceries, 
and shelter for society's most vulnerable, unhoused people, people being released from prison, housing insecure queer and trans people of color, a massive campaign to free prisoners for public health set the stage for the summer of unrest. Like many of my fellow quarantiners, I have developed a mania for gardening. I keep thinking of the immense faith that the mere act of planting a seed requires a faith in the future that slips under the radar of consciousness. Through planting, I cultivate a relationship to the future, an intuitive understanding of the ongoingness of life. I think of what Angela Davis said in a talk immediately following the first wave of, of protests against the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. She said, I never thought I would live to see this day. It was a shock to me too, to finally see the struggle for abolition abruptly enter the public consciousness. Davis had spent half a century planting seeds in the talk, Davis lamented the fact that so many of her comrades did not live to witness this political awakening. And yet all those decades, even centuries of seed planting, the entire long history of the Black radical tradition from slave revolts to Black Lives Matter went into the making of this political moment. More was accomplished in a summer of street protests than was accomplished through years of political hand-wringing. It was as though the long repressed nightmare of American racism suddenly burst into the national consciousness. The public began to take a close look at police budgets and ask why the country has invested so heavily in the failed social policy of prisons and police. Why investing in punishment is prioritized over investing in education, housing, healthcare, addressing the climate crisis, and all the other things that actually make communities safe by protecting the foundations of our lives. As the abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore has said, prisons and police have become catch-all solutions for social policy. To give you a sense of how massive the punishment system has become, in the United States, consider the following. According to Sam Levine of The Guardian, in the past four decades, the cost of policing in the US has tripled and is now $115 billion. New York City spends more on policing than it does on the Department of Health, Homeless Services, housing preservation and development, and youth and community development combined. 
the NYPD has a budget of $6 billion. In Chicago, the police get 39% of the budget, $1.8 billion. $33 million goes towards putting cops in Chicago public schools. In LA, $1.8 billion goes to the LAPD, more than 53% of Los Angeles's general fund. The Oakland Police Department receives nearly half of the city's discretionary budget. While the summer of protests rapidly changed the terms of the discussion and led to nascent efforts to cut police budgets, the reactionary backlash has already begun. Politicians on both sides are vying for the claim to being the biggest champion of law and order. Democrats propose dispersing federal funds to law enforcement to help reform the police, despite the fact that history has demonstrated that increasing funding for police and prisons under the smokescreen of reform merely expands punitive policing and the capacity to incarcerate ever greater numbers of people. History is not linear. There's no moral arc to the universe, but rather moments of abrupt rupture that emerge out of a chaotic confluence of factors. To speak of hope in the face of the radical unknowability of the future in an era of quantum politics, at a time when white supremacists are marching in the streets and far-right nationalists are gaining power across the world, feels like an act of rhetorical ledger domain. Sometimes when I look at the past, all I see is the terrible, endless churn of life and death, countless unmarked graves, the ravaging forces of capitalism laying waste to the planet. But somewhere there is a swarm of bards who distill that pain in a song sung, looking down at the wreckage of history watching the churn while the cries of the vanquished souls bellow from the void. It is the cry of George Floyd for his mother as the breath of life slowly left his body and how the world heard that cry when the officer Derek Chauvin did not. It was intolerable See the chasm of history opening. One million bodies are falling into the river once and for all. An ancient wind blows from beyond to stitch all of time together, change the flow, change the direction. One morning when I was in teletherapy with my psychoanalyst, I was agonizing over what I would say to my students. 
I sensed their morale is low, I said. I need to give them a pep talk, but I haven't got anything comforting to say except that you never know when the seeds you plant will take. Perhaps, my therapist replied, the best we can do is take the long view of history. So I say to you tonight or today, wherever you are, remind yourself of the radical impermanence of everything you assume to be fixed. How frightening it is to live in a state of flux. How appealing the status quo becomes during these moments. Yet it is only during such moments that, the rad that radical change becomes possible. Friedrich Nietzsche once wrote, remain true to the earth and believe not those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes. To plant seeds in dark times is not a retreat into a fantasy of salvation nor does it make you a hope-peddling Pollyanna. It is stewardship of the earth. As Fred Moten says, I believe in the world and want to be in it. I want to be in it all the way to the end of it because I believe in another world inside the world. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Jackie, for that powerful speech. Uh, just for everyone, if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat box. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook, you can add it as a Facebook comment as well. Just to kick off the Q&A session, um, I'd like to start with the question, you know, seeing that our audience is probably from different parts of the world, probably partly from Singapore as well as the States. Um, to Jackie, what do you think we could do when we talk about cross-border solidarity? Because, you know, in Singapore, there were a lot of young Singaporeans who were looking at Black Lives Matter and wanting to talk about it. Um, there's not really that much avenue for them to organize physically, um, not just because of COVID, but because of Singapore's laws against um, public assemblies. And so there was a lot of questioning at the time about what can we do from you know halfway across the world what can we actually be doing to help yeah i mean i really think uh cross-border solidarity is absolutely crucial and a very um intrinsic and core part of the black radical tradition so this is something that i like to discuss with my students and you know if we're thinking about race if we're thinking about prisons and police I mean thinking about you know Singapore being a former colony of the British Empire and thinking about legacies of colonialism I really do think it's important to create um, transnational networks of solidarity and this was something that I was very inspired by even you know when we go back to looking at the Ferguson 
protests. There was so much discussion of um, the, the even what you could say the international nature of the carceral state. So a lot of um, the gear used to repress protesters. Um, some of it is produced um, by Israeli companies. Um, there was um, there were lots of Palestinians who were. Um, tweeting and giving advice to Ferguson protesters about how to not um, uh, get um, to how to deal with tear gas when people are being tear gassed in the streets. And that's something that I think, you know, you also saw in the recent wave of protests, which are still going on in many places, but there were uh, protests that happened across the world, um, it really was um, international when things, you know, initially got started um, in the early days. So that was late May and into June. Um, so I think that was really inspiring for me personally to see all those protests happening around the world and people talking about how you know racism functions in their specific geographical um, context. So you know, like thinking about um, oppression against um, Muslim immigrants in France, for example, um, and other social contexts. And I do agree that um, thinking about you know possibilities for organizing remotely. I mean, I wish I had answers to this because I see, you know, um, I just started a job at new school and the school is restructuring and this has like kind of uh, foreclosed a lot of possibilities in terms of mobilization amongst faculty and students. Um, and there are ways, I mean, there are lots of um, mutual aid groups that have formed online. So that was something that I, you know, referenced in my talk was even people who weren't out in the streets could participate um, in the struggle through organizing these mutual aid campaigns. So when massive numbers of people were getting arrested and um, there was, you know, high bail amount set to get people free. You saw people creating um, fundraising efforts to free people from jail for protesting. So I do think that there are challenges that come with working remotely, but there are also possibilities that are opened in terms of organizing. We just have a question that came in the chat. So the question is, if a critical aspect of abolition work is the work of imagination, what role do writers and artists have in liberation? That's a great question. And this is one that I take up um, very explicitly in the conclusion of my book, Carceral Capitalism. So the final chapter in my book is called um, The Prison Abolitionist Imagination. And I wanted to include, um, well, I'm a poet and I don't like compartmentalizing different uh, parts of um, my body of work. And so I decided to write a poetic 
outro to the book where I started to think, you know, about the role, not even the role of artists and writers in the struggle, but just the imaginative work that goes into social movements. Um, I'm in, you know, inspired by um, the you know, anti-colonial revolutionary Franz Fanon. And he writes about how consciousness itself changes in the process of revolt. So even when we think about imagination, it isn't like the visionary artist um, creates like this picture of what the world could be and then puts it out in the world, but it's actually through living through that moment, through engaging in the struggle that new things become even imaginatively possible. So when I was thinking about, you know, how to end my book, Carceral Capitalism, I started thinking about um, um, new rhythms of being that are opened up by political struggle, um, but also, you know, the role of rhythm in poetry. Um, I really like that, um, you know, poetry can create a new vibrational field that makes things feel possible in ways that they didn't feel before. So for me, that that's kind of how I, I think of the relationship between art and politics. It's like, a, I guess you could say a dialectical process. I think that's interesting because, you know, one of my other questions for you before was just thinking about it in the, in the Singapore context, because I had uh, with Black Lives Matter going on, a young Singaporean came up to me and said, um, well, if you're working on abolishing the death penalty, have you considered just saying that Singapore should abolish prisons? Um, and that struck me as, uh, my first reaction was that that's a bridge too far because people are already very angry at me for wanting to abolish the death penalty. And then yeah. we started talking about how would you broach this subject to somebody who has not really thought about it before, has no concept of what, you know, might be meant when people say abolish prisons or defund the police and actually feel they feel quite anxious and upset by the idea because they they hear it and the knee jerk is you don't want safety which is a very big deal in singapore a lot of people are very concerned about law and order in fact they justify the death penalty because of law and order and so that was one of these conversations that we had like how would you even broach that and i think in your previous question, I think that, um, you know, that gives the idea that perhaps artists and poets could also be part of that, that first step mm -hmm. to raising the idea. But how else would you think mm -hmm. we could go? What's your experience in talking to people about this? It's really interesting because it, it changed very fast. I mean, I, you know, I, I talk about abolition in my uh, book and you know I've been talking um, about my book at events for a couple years now and I would always get lots of trolls who would say this is this is completely crazy as an idea um, 
my apologies for using um, ableist language there, but that's the response that I got from people when I broached the topic of abolition at events. And, you know, one way that I like to um, kind of, you know, I, and I don't blame, you know, people for, um, you know, being um, raised in a context where that is the um, norm that is instilled in people like punitivity is so deep in um, American culture and from a, what I've read Singaporean culture as well. Um, so what I try to do when I you know talk about um, the U.S. context is you know think about take people back to the early days of the rise of what we call mass incarceration. So we're, th we're talking, you know, the 1970s um, when it was looking like prisons might become obsolete as an institution. Suddenly you have, um, a, you know, a very rapid spike um, in the rate of incarceration and it just continued to grow. Um, up until basically like post-2008, you know, forced those numbers down a little bit, but they haven't really budged very much at all. So when you look at, you know, when you try to think historically about what was happening, I mean, there were massive changes happening in the economy of the United States. There, you know, there was the move jobs were moving from cities to suburbs and abroad. Um, there was, you know, stagflation. There was a pretty severe economic crisis happening in the, seven, in the 70s. And leading up to that period, you saw massive federal investment in um, police and prisons through um, the LEAA, which is a federal agency that disperses funds to the government. So basically what I, what I like to do is explain to people that you essentially have um, the collapse of economies in certain places, especially um, urban areas in the United States. And to absorb those people, prisons become the, the social policy that is implemented to deal with these very various crises created by the restructuring of the economy. And so it wasn't just that suddenly people just decided to commit more crime and they just have way more people incarcerated because of, of you know, out of control crime rate. It was, it was a policy decision that the, um, you know, the country made. So when I think, uh, so I try to talk, walk people through the history and then, you know, talk people through this question of what is the function of prisons? Is it uh, allegedly it's, you know, most people who, who go to prison will be released at some point. And is it actually to make people whole so they can become participants in a community after being released or is it punishment? And, um, you know, I think that in the United States, we want it both ways. Like it's a highly punitive culture, but also 
um, there is this illusion of caring about rehabilitation, but it doesn't ultimately, it doesn't make um, communities safer. And I really do think that um, investing in other ways, such as education, housing, healthcare, jobs, these kinds of things, putting the money there is much more effective as social policy in terms of making communities safer. Um, yeah, I was reading a little bit about the Singaporean context and how, um, you know, like bad the recidivism rate is in Singapore. So maybe that's one way you can start the conversation, talk about, well, it's not actually succeeding as a policy in terms of making um, the place safer. So I think um, trying to redefine safety, not as having um, police and prisons to respond to things that are happening, but making people whole. So you actually give create foundation for people's lives. I think you're right that in Singapore, we definitely do want it both ways because it is very much about prisons being punishment and deterrence. But at the same time, the Singapore prison uh, actively refers to themselves as the captains of lives. And the prison slogan is to rehab, re restart and renew or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So they definitely are trying to do it both ways. Um, and it's, yeah, there's not a lot of discussion yet. Uh, there is more discussion recently about recidivism and how recidivism is also racialized in that um, ethnic minority uh, inmates who are released are found to have a higher recidivism rate because the prison, even when they're in prison, the prison doesn't invest in them joining the rehabilitation programs as much as they do others. Mm -hmm. So some of the other questions um, that have come in in the chat. The Black Lives Matter movement has inspired protests around the world in solidarity, but how internationally oriented would you say is the current American movement? Does it look to make common cause with progressive or radical movements elsewhere? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I grapple with a lot. And this is, a, you know, a very a important part of um, my pedagogical approach is I, I like to center the need for internationalism, but it's really, it's really hard because yeah, the, the national framework is, um, you know, so, uh, so deeply entrenched, but also I feel like you know, the radicals that we're looking to in this moment, people like Angela Davis, they come out of a different political moment where there was a third world solidarity global movement. There was the backdrop of the Cold War. Um, it was like a multipolar world. And, um, you know, it was, you know, coming also out of anti-colonial movements that were happening around the world and actual solidarity, um, material solidarity between these different struggles that were happening simultaneously. So I do feel like the, you know, 
geopolitical moment that we're in is maybe part of why there's less of an emphasis on internationalism, but I certainly see in, you know, like my field and critical ethnic studies that having an international lens is um, coming back. And I do see more people talking about the need for international solidarity. But I did a lot of research in Angela Davis's papers and she was uh, so deeply connected to different struggles that were happening all across the globe. And, you know, since she was um, a communist, she had ties to socialists and communist movements in Latin America and the Soviet Union and, you know, Asia as well. So, yeah, I do hope, though, that um, um, we can bring some of those lessons from the 60s and 70s into the present moment, because I think it's very important. And related to, to the movement, um, do you think that momentum for defunding the police and refunding communities has slowed down after like the initial spurt of success? And how would you maintain the momentum or strengthen it even? It's, it's a really, really good question. And one that I, I'm, I think is super tricky to deal with right now because the economic response in the United States has been a catastrophe. I mean, you know, we haven't, um, had a stimulus bill in months, you know, it's like, okay, people got $1,200 and unemployed people for a very brief window got a top up from the federal government. Um, but basically people are, have fallen off that uh, fiscal cliff now. And so I think this is actually creating a situation where it's making it easier for law and order politicians to say that um, the problems that we're seeing, such as increases in crime, and I'm, I'm critical of how crime is defined and categorized, but politicians are pointing to that as proof that the movement to defund the police has been misguided and I really do think it's the pandemic um, really you know even thinking about crimes of poverty like you know like if you need if you can't afford groceries and you steal groceries like that's committing a criminal act but it's certainly tied to um, you know the desperate situation that people are in so I do think that it's it's very tricky now I, I feel like there has been a back backlash against the movement to defund the police. And I, I really hope that people can push back against that narrative and disaggregate, you know, like, well, we're living in a pandemic and, and some of the social fallout that we're seeing is a direct result of the pandemic. We can't blame the movement to defund the police. Uh, for these things that are happening. So I do think that there has been backlash in, in recent 
in maybe the last month, month and a half, but I do feel ho hopeful because, you know, um, it is in some ways a generational thing, you know, um, I talk to my students and they're still very much motivated to continue this, you know, fight. Um, and, uh, you know, even though some of, um, I guess, the you know, people who are kind of of the, of the centrist wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, I just like look at my parents to try to index them where the political mood is at in, in amongst that demographic. And I think amongst, you know, um, the boomer generation that there is like a, a pivot to law and order that is happening. Um, but we'll see, I mean, like I was saying in my talk, um, it, there was this opening that happened in the summer and a radical transformation of the conversation. Now we're seeing some recuperation happen, happening, but I do hope that the groundwork is being created for that work to continue. And there's one more question here for, for both of us, actually. So going off the remark that your psychoanalyst made about taking the long view of history brings up a tension between the near far focal distance of seeing into the past and also the future. Optically, if you focus on one, another falls out of the depth of field. So um, the question is asking for both of us to reflect on how how we balance the near-term acute activism that you're a part of and the long-distance movements for structural change that you are each motivated by. Oh, that's a good question because it is a matter. I mean, if we think even not um, just like in terms of vision, but the capacity to hold um, the present and the future, you can't hold them both in your mind at the same time. I mean, we're kind of doing this thing mentally where we're like present and, oh, there's the thing that I have to do, but our mind wanders into the future and, it, and then it goes to the past and maybe being in quarantine sends us into our past in a way that we're usually not. Um, Cause we're like in the flow of, of life when um, the world is open. Um, but I do, I do find it really, really hard to think about the future in the moment that we're in. And, you know, thinking about the prison abolitionist imagination, that was all about the need to, um, you know, not get so caught up in what I call the um, realism of the present. That would, that's really what, um, you know, uh, abolition is about, like not capitulating to the realism of the present. And so I do think that it's really important to, to, to denaturalize the present and to, to take a different perspective. Uh, but I do think that there's a lot of challenges that 
come with feeling like the present is a is a catastrophe and you don't know <laughs> what you're going to do um you know because there are just so many immediate things coming at you whether it's paying your rent or you know the question of whether or not you're going to have a job like these are all issues that make it harder to keep that long view in mind um you know my analyst has a little bit of a different perspective on things because she's older and so she's you know been through um cycles of history in a way that i'm 32 years old so um, I'm kind of limited, although, you know, there's some watershed moments that I lived through, whether it's 9-11 or the 2008 financial crash. So I, I do have those as like, um, you know, just anchoring points to remind myself that history is this whirlwind and you can't ever predict how it will go. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't really have any answers in terms of doing the balancing act. For me, I, I find that um, journaling, <laughs> as, as corny as it sounds, journaling helps me um, maintain perspective, whether it's on the past or the future. Yeah, for me, I think, so like the most, I suppose the most kind of clear example of this struggle between the demands of the present and also the future um, in the stuff that I do is, for example, when there's like an imminent execution in Singapore and mm -hmm. all our attention is on this one inmate. And sometimes mm -hmm. I get a little bit frustrated because I'm like, then we're not talking about systemic issues, right? The, the whole conversation veers into how sorry we are for this one person. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I feel really dissatisfied that like we're not actually talking about this kind of entire system. And, you know, sometimes the people we're talking to about this issue aren't even thinking about the death penalty. They're just like, oh, this guy is so young. That's so sad. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can't deny that we need to have this razor sharp focus because, you know, it's like three days to execution and, and there's just no time. And so mm -hmm. constantly this kind of struggle between what's really, really urgent now. And there always is something that seems really, really urgent now and, and the future. And I think the way I balance it is to remind myself that um, there are many, many ways to recognize change and progress. So mm -hmm. I think if, if we are always setting our eyes on change is only change when abolition happens, then we, we necessarily become very miserable all the time because it doesn't seem to be happening in this present mm -hmm. moment. But if we recognize changes, you know, well, more students in universities are talking about it, more people are open to the question, you know, I'm not getting shut down as quickly as I was 10 years ago. I think that that gives me motivation to continue because it, it does show that there is shift. And to recognize that small shifts are also really important because it might seem like a small shift to us, but to the, that person who's in the beginning process of changing their minds, that's actually mm -hmm. quite a big shift for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very significant. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 When I, um, was in um, the Black and Pink Collective. It's a queer prison abolitionist group. There was so much mail that um, was needed to be processed that most of the work was processing the huge backlog of mail. And it did, it did feel like, oh my God, there are so many crises that need to be taken care of in the moment that how do we ever even get on top of the mail backlog, let alone like the visionary work of, you know, the big structural change, the abolitionist future. So I think that that is like, yeah, a constant challenge when, you know, thinking about um, the immediate things that need to be tended to what related to prisons in particular. Uh, so building on this question that we were just talking about, there was one, um, what do you think about short-term compromises that might be considered reformist, but also crucial for dealing with the present? Yeah, I'm not categorically dismissive of reform, although I think it's important to think about reform in a historical context. Um, you know, I have... Uh, been teaching about um, the history of the, you know, community corrections movement and bail reform. And a lot of these um, well-intentioned initiatives that were very popular in the 60s and 70s ultimately ended up expanding the carceral state by drawing resources to prisons and and police. And so for me, I mean, there are like lots of um, different ways to think about this. Critical resistance has very useful worksheets that you can like go through the different reforms and it like gives you an analysis of whether it's a, it could be an abolitionist reform or whether it's a reformist reform. And I do think for me, one of the key things is this question of whether it will, it, the reform can expand prisons and police by drawing more resources to prisons and police. So, you know, that also includes um, Joe Biden's uh, plan to disperse hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funds to police departments. He says to make them better, uh, but you know, I don't think he will really. <laughs> it's it's like a, that was, you know, the what was the justification in the early days of the buildup of the prison system was we're gonna make prisons better. They're crumbling, they need to be modernized, we're gonna inject a ton of money into modernizing prisons and police. And this will this will make them more humane. Um, this will make police departments um, better functioning. There are all these arguments that were given that were reform arguments that were given to transferring that money for prisons and, and police. So I do think that if we look at the lessons of history, you know, where did that leave us? We, you know, exploding um, 
police budgets, as I talked about in my talk, and then like massive expansion of the capacity to incarcerate people. So for me, I, I, I like to ask the question of, is it going to disperse more money uh, to police departments or to prisons? And so we have about five minutes left. So I'm just gonna combine a few of the questions. And so the question is, um, do you think that one of the reasons that people might be against the abolitionist approach or put off by you know, the slogan or the idea of defunding the police is that because there, aren't, there isn't enough emphasis on fair transitions and what you know, defunding the police would actually entail? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Um, I think that uh, if you actually talk to abolitionists who have been working on these issues for decades, they have very, very, very thoughtful ideas about uh, transformative justice, alternative processes of um, you know community accountability these kinds of things but also about what kinds of social policies could replace um, investment in prisons and police so I do think that there's a bit of a disconnect between you know like the hashtag defund the police as a social media phenomenon versus you know, the actual thoughtful work that people have been doing for a very long time to try to actually think about these things and, you know, create community infrastructure. Um, yeah, like thinking about the Audre Lorde project had a Safe Outside the System collective, which was, you know, specifically to develop alternatives to calling the police by creating like a community hotline that people could call. Um, and I do think that, you know, even um, thinking about um, very, very basic things like if someone is having a mental health crisis, is there a phone line they can call that isn't the police? A lot of places, the only option is, you know, calling the police. The police aren't trained to deal with people who are having mental health crises. And so, you know, that's a, something that is, is like one of the things that you can try to implement right away. It's like, okay, what are the, what are the kinds of situations that police deal with because it's the catch-all social policy that we have in place? And what are the things that we can create to um, you know, address those kinds of situations when they happen so, that, so it isn't the police dealing with them? Thank you very much. I think we are just on time to finish. So thank you everybody for attending today and I'm going to hand it back to G.
Hi, G. I think you're muted. Oh, sorry. Yep, I will say that again. Thank you so much, uh, Kirsten, uh, for moderating this uh, very interesting and enlightening conversation. And big thanks to uh, Jackie, I know, for your talk, which is so poetic and imaginative, but at the same time, so grounded in facts too, which is exactly what we need. Um, thank you for actually, you know, um, uh, your assessment of, you know, the current moment and, you know, uh, pointing out a few touchstones, you know, for judging, you know, progress or regression, all right, ahead. Uh, but especially for reminding us that, you know, these things, we do need a historical perspective and for giving us a wonderful metaphor of the seed and planting the seed, reminding us that, you know, whatever fruit we might be reaping at this moment has been planted a long time ago by generations of activists uh, before us. So thank you so much, Jackie, for all that uh, uh, encouragement that you've given us uh, tonight. Um, to the audience, everybody, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. Please check out uh, Castro Capitalism, the book by uh, Jackie Wang, and also We the Citizens uh, Newsletter by Kirsten Han. The links are given in chat uh, for your convenience. Now with the upcoming presidential election uh, in the US, uh, the fate of democracy is very much on our minds. If you would like to turn out to the vote, do check out these two organizations in chat, which are mobilizing ordinary citizens to prevent uh, voter suppression and to increase turnout. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this event uh, brought to you by uh, Singapore Unbound. We couldn't have put up this whole festival without the support of our authors, moderators, donors, and co-presenters. I want to give a special shout out to the festival organizing team who have been so incredibly creative, talented and passionate about our work. So big thanks go to our concept uh, consultant, Melinda Lau, our design consultant, uh, Flora Chan, our publicity consultant, Ali Chua, our technical consultant, Henry Cheng, our event managers, Kimberly Lim, Judy Luo and Janelle Tan, our social media team, Jia Xing Chu, Zhen Ti Diu, Jade On, Jiao Yang Li, and Emily Von Bostel. Our video editor, uh, Thompson T. And last but certainly not least, our closed captioners, Kendrick Liu, Melinda Lau, Zhen Ti Diu, and Jia Xing Chu. You guys rock. Now, if you like what uh, Singapore Unbound is doing for cultural exchange, freedom of expression and equal rights, please consider making a generous donation at Fractured Atlas, our fiscal sponsor. We rely on champions like you to do the work that we do. Thank you everyone for joining us for the 2020 Singapore Literature Festival in NYC digital version. We hope to see you in 2022 when the fifth edition of the festival rolls round. In the meantime, stay safe, do good, and take care of one another. Goodbye, everyone, and good luck. <laughs>